Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Earlier this month, the International Black Theater Summit commemorated the 200th anniversary of the African Theater, the first black theater company in the U.S. The troupe of black actors in New York in the early 1820s mainly performed works of Shakespeare for black theater-goers. The productions were well-attended and enthusiastically received. Far too little is known of black theater in our history, an area of expertise of Professor Ayanna Thompson, whose research is on blacks in Renaissance and Shakespearean literature. She writes about those topics and the historic repercussions in her recent book, Blackface, as we'll hear later this hour. First, a message of unity through diversity is at the core of of a one-of-a-kind new dance performance presented by the Atlanta Chinese Dance Company. Together, Inca and Hip Hop Unite will bring Chinese folk dances together with hip hop and modern dance, combining the talent of two unique dance troupes from different cultural backgrounds. The performance takes place October 2nd and 3rd at Gas South Theater in Duluth. It was conceived by the Atlanta Chinese Dance Company's co-artistic director, Carrie Lee, and dance choreographer, A.J. Pog, both of whom are with me now via Zoom. Carrie and A.J., welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for having us. Carrie, how did you come up with the idea of bringing these cultures of dance together for this unusual performance event? Well, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to collaborate with a professor at an HBCU, and it was a really wonderful experience. And we thought it would be wonderful to uh, expand that to a group work. And I met AJ Pog 
through a previous project and we had danced together in the last Atlanta Chinese Dance Company production and we really enjoyed working with each other. So we thought AJ would be a great person to help us bring out this vision. Ah, so AJ, that's how you became involved. Yes. The performance's overall theme, the overarching theme is unity and diversity. Social justice warriors coming together to defeat universal threats to humankind. What are some of these universal threats you address? I think the most obvious one is probably the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, just in general, the division in our country and and racism and, uh, you know, natural disasters. AJ? For me, I like to think it's just overall just the fear of it all that creates that chaos in our mind that creates that separation. Is that for me? Does the show have a narrative element to it, sort of an overarching theme? Yeah, so it starts out with kind of our individual groups. And so first you'll see the Chinese dance group. And when we encounter the hip-hop dancers at first, we kind of view them as possibly like an intruder or an enemy. And so we kind of push them away, but they're insistent and they come back and we get pushed away by them. And then at the end of their section, we surround them and then we clash. Uh, In the middle of our clash, there's like a third party, like a monster or creature that kind of brings us all down. And it's only through coming together and joining hands together that we're able to defeat this creature or monster. And at the end of that, then we celebrate together. So that's kind of the overarching arc of the piece. Ah, Now, are there dancers who play specific roles? Is it like a narrative ballet? Yeah, there are two kind of main roles and main leads. Carrie plays the lead for the Chinese dance group, and we have Xavier Lewis, who's playing the lead for the um, hip-hop group. And it is kind of um, created like a ballet where there's a story involved, there's conflict, and then there's resolution. So, um, And I've always wanted to create a ballet. I come from some of my history in dance comes from classical dance and concert dance. So I thought it was a, an amazing opportunity when uh, Carrie presented it to me to make my ballet dance choreography a dream come true. So I wanted to do something like that with this piece. So this is exciting on various levels for you. Carrie, the Chinese dance elements are in a style called Inca. What can you tell us about the Inca tradition? Yeah, so Inca means hero song in Chinese, and it's a style that has rarely been performed in the United States, as far as I know. And so it's really exciting for us to be able to share it. And it actually comes from my uh, ancestral home in Caozhou, which is in southern China. And they're channeling ancient heroes from a famous classical novel called Shui Hu Zuan, or Water Margin. And the folk dance style originated from the Ming dynasty. As I was researching this style, it kind of dawned on me that they're kind of like ancient China's versions of social justice heroes. So that's why I had this thought that, you know, what if these ancient Chinese social justice heroes met their modern day American counterparts? Like what would happen? Like, would they get along because they, you know, both are seeking justice or would their differences tear them apart? Like what would happen 
So that's kind of what made me want to make a work about this piece. Oh, wow. This production has 14 dances with the hip-hop and Chinese piece as the finale. The other dance pieces showcase different historical time periods, present day, various Chinese ethnic groups. Can you tell us some highlights of the other pieces you'll perform? Sure. So Chinese dance, uh, we have classical dances, which come from the imperial courts of ancient China. There's also folk dances, which mostly come from the countryside. And uh, within folk dance, there are 56 ethnic groups in China. We'll be presenting a few of them. One of them is the Han, which is the majority, which is over 90% of the population in China. And some of them are from the minority ethnic groups, such as the Yao and the Yi and many others. One example of a piece we're doing is from the Yao uh, minority ethnic group is called Drying Skirts. So there's a festival where there's a particular day in the year where they they dry their clothes outside because they believe that it, it can ward off insect plague. So th it's a very interesting piece. They dance with a skirt. Uh, sometimes it, they use a skirt to cover their face. It almost looks like the skirt's hanging from the window. And then later on, they put on their skirts and they dance with it. Um, there's another piece that's uh, kind of representing more of a contemporary history called Newspaper Kids. That's a piece representing young kids who are selling newspapers. During wartime, you can see how young children are affected by the news of the day. Like when it's a wartime or when the war is over, it, it really like deeply affects their lives. And I thought it's very timely for what's going on now, just like with the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, when the cases go up, the cases go down, it affects our everyday lives. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the States, we don't realize how vast, not only the vastness of China, but how many different groups of people comprise the population. This is very educational in, in what you are presenting. The Atlanta Chinese Dance Company has been around for 30 years plus, even performing at the opening and closing ceremonies of the Centennial Olympic Games in Atlanta. And Carrie, you now co-lead the company with your mother, Huiyang Li. What's it like to direct such an ambitious and accomplished dance company with your mom? Oh, I don't even know how to put it into words. It's just like such a big part of my life because I grew up with it and just as an American-born Chinese, and my mom is an immigrant from Singapore, we have kind of two different perspectives. And so it's very exciting to be able to, to kind of bring both, both of those uh, perspectives to our company, especially like with our piece together, Inga and Hip Hop Unite, that as an American-born Chinese, I, I really want Chinese dance to be something that's accessible to American audiences and not to be viewed as something that's just like exotic or something that's just like, uh, you know, the, from this faraway place and this faraway time. But um, Chinese dance is a movement language just like any other dance style, and it can be used to tell American present-day stories, too. As you are doing here. AJ, you have been a dancer, choreographer, and teacher for 18 years, running your own dance production company, Pandaco Media, and working with clients like Netflix, Disney's Marvel original series WandaVision and Kanye West live events. 
How did you first become involved with dance? It started way back. I was born in the Philippines, and I remember still as a kid walking past the television and seeing this man dancing on stage in a concert. And I'm like, what, what is going on? What is this magic? And why is people clapping for him? And uh, I just remember being glued in from the TV. And after I finished watching the concert, and this man was Michael Jackson, by the oh, way, who wow. has inspired a generation. And he's, he inspired me as a, as a little kid. There was that I felt that energy through the TV. And um, I started to emulate it. And uh, I found that dancing got me attention, got me out of trouble sometimes as a kid. And, but I, I never got to really develop it until later on once my mom brought me to America. And uh, she didn't even know that I really had this talent until she brought me to one of the Filipino parties and asked me to dance in front of everyone. And uh, yeah, from there... <laughs> I've always been artistically inclined, and I, it wasn't until I was in middle school that I was approached by a dance studio and was asked to come and take classes and assist. And from there, I went to high school, uh, decided I wanted to really pursue and concentrate dance. So I went to an arts high school and uh, I started my formal kind of dance training there with the studio, went to KSU really took it seriously, wanted to get a major out of it. I'm now teaching at KSU as one of their um, faculty members. It's been a, 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 an incredibly wild journey and I owe everything that I've been able to experience in my life to some aspect of dance. And I'm still continuing to pursue that even with video work. So It is your life. The dance sequences are performed by guest dancers and students from Wesley International Academy. How did you get them involved? Have you worked with them before? The, the crew that I assembled are people that I've worked with, teach with, dance with. One thing I, I love to do is continue to support the dance community by bringing People that I know and have worked with, continuous jobs and opportunities, the same thing happens on their end. So we just try to help each other out. And I, I have a great cast. This is actually cast two. We had an original cast this summer, but unfortunately, you know, schedules change. People have to do things. So I have to, like in show business, show must go on. Got to find people that can uh, take on those roles and yeah, this, this is a, a really great group and full circle. A lot of uh, two of these people that are dancing with the crew, I actually started teaching them about seven or eight years ago. They actually started with me in hip hop training and now they are having incredible dance careers. And it's just, it's, it's so exciting for me to be able to work with people I've taught and continue creating great works with other people like uh, Carrie and being able to collaborate is something that I just enjoy doing. I'm eager for both of you to talk about the hip hop and Chinese dance finale and the music that goes with it. What can you tell us? It's a mix of a, a lot of different types of music. So the Chinese dance section kind of has the Chinese dance music, hip hop section has hip hop music. We talked about what we wanted to use when we dance together. And so for the clash, we decided on taiko. Um, we thought drumming 
is something that we could both connect with. And also Tycho is something that's neither of our styles. And then for the celebration section at the end, we decided to use drumline music. I'd actually heard, I was uh, watching on Facebook, I saw like during the protests uh, last summer, during the George Floyd protests, I had seen a group dancing to drumline music and they were spinning their drumsticks and it, it kind of reminded me of the movement that we did in the Inca. And I thought, you know, this might be a nice, uh, a fresh music for our, our celebration section. AJ? Yeah, and and I really loved being able to combine uh, at the finale our styles kind of coming together and we all dancing it together as one. That was something that was really important to both of us, was trying to represent that togetherness through movement. It was fun being able to learn some of their steps and then trying to translate it over to our steps and vice versa. So it's been an incredibly unique experience for both of our groups. AJ Park and Carrie Lee, creative directors for a new show presented by the Atlanta Chinese Dance Company. Together, Inca and Hip Hop Unite. The performance will take place Saturday and Sunday at Gas South Theater, formerly the Infinite Energy Theater in Duluth. More information on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll revisit my conversation with the author and scholar of black theater, Ayana Thompson. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. September 17th marked the 200th anniversary of the African Theater, the first black theater in the United States. The company's lifespan was short, but its legacy changed American drama. To that note, Broadway Theater returned this season with an unprecedented seven works by black playwrights. In the years between these landmarks, the ugly tradition of white actors using dark makeup to crudely imitate the appearances of black Americans took hold. Author and scholar Dr. Ayanna Thompson recently confronted this disturbing aspect of American performance history in her book, Blackface, 
Professor Thompson joined me in May to discuss the book, and here she explains why she wanted to dissect the history surrounding the practice of blackface. I realized, right, this is a history that we like to pretend exists only in the past, that it's over and done with and we don't need to think about it anymore. But as I discovered, there were so many performances on American television in the 21st century that employed blackface from episodes of Saturday Night Live to Jimmy Kimmel's The Man Show, Sarah Silverman's show, 30 Rock, four different episodes of 30 Rock. And of course, Fred Armisen in blackface to be President Barack Obama for five years, from 2011 to 2016. So there was so much in the current moment that was showing us blackface that I felt like I had to write a book that said, it's not just in the past, it's happening now. We need to understand the long arc of how this came to be. And we need to find a way for us to end it today, collectively. Oh, well, that arc is extremely long, as you write. I was amazed to learn about the medieval roots of blackface. And you said some 40 plays during Shakespeare's time involved blackface? Yeah, so medieval theater was primarily religious-based. So these were biblical stories that they would make come to life in their local towns in England. And many of the religious plays depict uh, the fall of angels. And when they fell and were damned, they would appear in blackface. And we think they use different types of racial prosthetics from oils like bitumen to, you know, kind of more generally makeup things to masks and visors wigs, gloves, etc. So in that religious context, some people have argued, well, that's symbolic or metaphoric and not racialized. But it becomes clear by the time that Shakespeare's writing plays that those kind of symbolic blacknesses then transferred into characters who were supposed to be from Africa and Turkey and Asia, etc., and the calculations by other scholars, Matthew Chapman and Jonathan Burton, individually, they guess that there's somewhere between 50 and 75 characters of color on the Renaissance stage. So you think in their tiring houses, which is like their costume rooms, they not only had a variety of costumes, but also a variety of racial prosthetics from fake noses, wigs, vitamins, oils, etc., so this is very popular, yeah. It, this scholarship that you have done just makes me want to go back and read more about this. What is blackface minstrelsy? Right. So if we think about the medieval and Renaissance stagings that I talked about, that's generally called blackface. So it's the application of black makeup or prosthetics to appear as another race. Blackface minstrelsy is usually separated out as a specific performance tradition and genre that started in the 19th century in America, we think around 1830, that is a performance mode that is comical in nature and is used to deride 
and um, make fun of enslaved people and recently freed people. And T.D. Rice is often credited as the father of blackface minstrelsy because he said that he was watching an enslaved man in a barn and he was kind of hobbled on his legs but was singing a song and, and sort of dancing. And Rice said that he wanted to imitate that on stage for comical purposes and made up a song and a dance that became kind of the black blackface minstrelsy tradition that started out as like one man shows that were performed in between other performances to becoming full minstrel troops that would give you a, a whole performance with different skits. And this is where we get like the mammy character and the dandy character the Sambo character, all of those came out of this minstrelsy performance tradition. Now, a lot of scholars of minstrelsy try and separate it out from this earlier performance history that we call blackface. Uh, what I try and do is say that they're actually part of a continuum. Mm -hmm. And one of the most popular shows in 19th century America was Othello, which of course was performed by white actors in blackface from Shakespeare's time on to this moment in the 19th century. And Rice himself even created a minstrel performance of Othello. So you see that they really are related in the sense that black characters on stage in the English speaking world were from the beginning white performances in black makeup. So a black character was from the beginning of, you know, English performance history, a white endeavor. It's disturbing to read about Charles Matthews. Who was he and why was he destructive? Yeah, Charles Matthews was this very famous English performer and he created a kind of performance genre of a one-man show that was called at-home sketches. And really they showed the kind of versatility of the actor by his rapid switchings between different characters with different accents and sometimes quick costume changes. So he was famous for doing like a Parisian urbanite and then a Cockney, you know, street worker, and then, uh, you know, a country, uh, Scottish lass, all in rapid succession. And these were really, really popular in the early 19th century in England. And he came to the US in 1823, I believe, at the invitation of a theater impresario in New York named Stephen Price. And he came specifically because he thought he could get new material for these at-home sketches. But when he got to the US, he was quite dismayed by what he referred to as the sameness of walk and talk and dress. Like he was hoping his virtuosity is displayed by his ability to kind of make these rapid switches between characters, but the Americans he thought all looked and talked and sounded the same <laughs> until he said he met what, and this is his words from letters that he wrote to his friends, black gentry. And then his new show that debuted in 1824, so this is six years before the first full-fledged minstrel show by T.D. Rice. So 1824, he debuts this play called A Trip to America, in which he 
ruthlessly mocks Black Americans. And one of the things that he mocks in particular is what he calls, and I, I won't use the word, but the N-word theater. And we know that there was a Black theater in New York that was started by William Brown that was called the African Theater. And these Black actors put on plays by Shakespeare and contemporary plays. But they were particularly invested in Richard III, which was the most popular Shakespeare play at the time. But in Matthew's performance of this, he says he goes to their theater and sees a production of Hamlet in which the main actor mispronounces all the words and gets all the dialogue wrong. What's interesting, of course, is that this is a complete fiction because the theater company didn't do Hamlet. And mm. so he just starts kind of creating this performance mode that derides Black Americans for being uneducated and also striving for something beyond their means aspiring to put on Shakespeare, but in this bad way. And that gets folded into the minstrelsy performance tradition that later we see T.D. Rice and others exploding. So although many people like to think of blackface minstrelsy as an American and uniquely American phenomenon, we actually see that there are many English actors and entertainers who had a hand in its birth as well because they thought the white people they saw in America were all boring. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Would you tell us about James Hewlett? This was fascinating. Yes. James Hewlett is one of my favorite historical figures. He was one of the leading actors in the uh, African theater in New York. We think, just like William Brown, the founder of this theater, we think that Hewlett was a steward on transatlantic ships. So both Brown and Hewlett traveled abroad. They both have experiences in England, even though they're, you know, Black Americans. But he became one of the leading actors in the African theater. We know that he was a skilled dancer and actor, but he also has like a, an unbelievably tragic life. He ends up destitute and he is mocked mercilessly in the New York, white New York papers, again, for this like, you know, aspiring to do something that they assume is beyond his talent or ability. But he, he really set the stage for who was to become the first great Black American actor, who is Ira Aldridge who I assume some of your listeners will know about, but he was another Black American. He also got his start at the African theater alongside James Hewlett, but he rose to fame in Eastern Europe. He moved to England first in the 1820s and then stayed and didn't kind of reach the levels of fame he, he thought he'd get in London, but he got all these invitations to tour around Eastern Europe. And he was a superstar in Russia and Poland and other places. And we have accounts of him with like famous dukes and other literary figures and artistic figures. Sadly, he died in 1863, I believe. I might be getting the year wrong. But he was never able to return to the U.S., but that was his goal. Did he perform in Slavic languages? 
He performed in English and the rest of his cast, he would pick local actors and they would perform in their whatever language it was, whether it was Polish or Russian or other languages. But he also performed in whiteface when he performed as Macbeth and King Lear and other major parts in Shakespeare. So he was pretty, pretty amazing. But again, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> and you know, there are amazing biographies by him. And there's also a great book by Shane White called uh, Stories of New York that kind of tells the James Hewlett story. And then there's all amazing scholarship around Ira Aldridge. But I think Aldridge is important because even though he was performing lots of Shakespeare, Othello, Richard III, King Lear, Macbeth, like kind of the most famous ones in the 19th century. And he was performing the white characters in whiteface. Most of the reviews talk about him as being revelatory in Othello and not necessarily praising his whiteface performances. Mm -hmm. And I think this shows the kind of power imbalance that existed back then and still exists today and explains why my brown child did not white up to be William Shakespeare, whereas his white classmates blacked up to be Martin Luther King Jr. and Serena Williams, that there's not the assumption that people of color are entitled to performing whiteness. Author and Professor Ayanna Thompson will return to more of our conversation about her book, Blackface, in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to more of my conversation with the author Ayanna Thompson. Her book, Blackface looks at the centuries-old history and painful, lasting effects of the practice today. Here, Professor Thompson talks about the presence of blackface in film and on TV. We still have this, I've taken to call it like zombie performance mode. Like you think that blackface has been dead at various different times over these 400 years, right? Like, okay, it died after the Civil War and after Jim Reconstruction. Like, let's have blackface end then. But no, it comes back like a zombie at another time and it keeps coming back. It came back hugely in the 1980s. In fact, many of the politicians now who have been caught with blackface performances in their past, that those performances were in the 1980s. And then it had a huge resurgence in the 21st century around the election of Barack Obama as president of the United States. So there's this, this sense that like it won't die. It just keeps coming back. And for me, I, I, want, I want us all to linger on that and to, to think about like, is it actually gonna die now. We've had Tina Fey apologize for the four episodes of 30 Rock that had blackface. She's removed them from all the streaming platforms that host 30 Rock. And she said explicitly, I don't want any child who's looking for comedy to come across this harmful performance tradition and I apologize. 
So we have that. But then we also have Disney who has said, actually, we're going to keep all of our content and we're going to give you a warning at the beginning saying some of the content is harmful. Some of this is from our past when we should have known better. And we hope that this inspires a dialogue about how we want to proceed in the future. And I think what I'm hoping is that Blackface has my little book, and it is it's little and accessible. <laughs> it's not like an academic book. It is meant for a general readership. I hope my little book sets the stage for the debate between those two stances. Do we remove this? Do we erase this history? Or do we just warn people, keep it, and then hope that a dialogue ensues. Mm. And I think that's where we are. We're, we're trying to decide which place we are, where, what we want to do, and how that informs where we go in the future. You mentioned some of the politicians and actors, late night comedians. Early in the book, in chapter two, you write about contemporary public figures who have appeared in blackface. And many of the white people say they were unaware that this was offensive. Why is ignorance not innocence? Well, <laughs> I think, so for example, Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia, who is still the governor of Virginia right now, and Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, who is still the prime minister of Canada now, both of them within the span of a month had their past performances in blackface revealed. Northam, his yearbook photo was exposed while he said, I don't think that was actually me in the yearbook. The reason I can say that is because I do remember performing as Michael Jackson in a talent show in blackface and I won the talent show. For, uh, <laughs> for Justin Trudeau, it appears that he's done it at least three times. Uh, one seeing the Harry Belafonte song, Deo, the banana boat song, um, another time appearing as Aladdin, and the third time just randomly in, a, in blackface in, a, in an afro. So, But both of them said, I didn't know how harmful it was. Northam went on to say, I just didn't know about this history. I loved Michael Jackson. I wanted to showcase the fact that I had learned to do the moonwalk and that that took a lot of time and energy. And I didn't realize that by applying shoe polish, he specifically said he used shoe polish, that applying shoe polish would have been offensive. He goes, I know now, but really my intentions were pure. So the, the logic and rhetoric behind these stances are, I was innocent, I didn't know the history, and so I can't quite be culpable. I will say Justin Trudeau walked that language back in his longer explanation, saying, I have since realized that I should have known and that that was a kind of privilege, a white privilege stance that I took. And I promise to, to, you know, to uh, be an ally going forward. And I think that both of them still rely on this kind of innocence and there is not the equivalent for black and brown people. We don't have the presumption of innocence for our actions. Look at all of the unarmed black and brown people who have been killed by police officers in just the past five years. That's just not part of our cultural dialogue that we can rely on innocence 
to get us out of things that we've done wrong, or at least our intentions. And that's something that's sort of built into the repetition of blackface as a performance mode, that white people constantly feel that they can say, but my intentions were pure. I wanted to celebrate Harry Belafonte. I wanted to celebrate Michael Jackson. I wanted to celebrate, in another case, um, Diana Ross, when Luann DeLesseps, one of the house famous housewives, dressed up as Diana Ross in blackface for Halloween. I wanted to celebrate Barack Obama, if you're Fred Armisen, on Saturday Night Live for five years performing as <laughs> Barack Obama in blackface. Like, again, like, I think that assumption of like, I will celebrate by donning blackface that relies on this, like my intentions must be good. And so therefore it's not harmful. And I just want to say they're all related. The medieval performance traditions, the Renaissance performance traditions, the 19th century minstrelsy traditions, all of that is related to what happens in the 21st century. I'm wondering if Justin Trudeau felt that there was something he admired to the point of envy that he repeated this. I mean, I, it, it's incomprehensible to me that one wouldn't understand the offensiveness of putting on black makeup. I mean, what do you say to people who maintain that this is out of admiration? Well, so here's another example. The Academy Awards in 2012, right? Not 1912, 2012. Billy Crystal was the host of the Academy Awards that year. And he did a little skit at the beginning of the awards where he was kind of introducing all the films that were up for best picture. And in one of the, when he's talking about the Woody Allen film, Midnight in Paris, he appears in a kind of cafe scene in blackface to be Sammy Davis Jr. Oh dear. Was there no one in the room at the Academy Awards to say, I actually think this is not a good idea. It's 2012, this doesn't seem to be acceptable. But I think that was a moment when Barack Obama was president and people had an immense desire to be post-race. And that that meant that if we're done with race, we don't have to talk about it, we're all equal because we elected a black president, then all of these performance traditions, comedic performance traditions that had been ostensibly taboo are available again. And I think that's when you see like Ben Stiller's film Tropic Thunder that has Robert Downey Jr. in blackface for the entire film. Robert Downey Jr. was nominated for an Academy Award in 2008 for a blackface performance. Oh. Like, this is where, you know, you think, what? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think there is a real desire to say, we're not racist, I'm not racist, and so that means I'm allowed to do this. And just to be fair, when you're a student of comedy, the way that Billy Crystal is and Ben Stiller is and... Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel and Sarah Silverman and Tina Fey and others, all these people who have done blackface routines. When you're a, a student of comedy, that is one of the taboos that you want to explore because comedy is always about pushing the edges. But again, like you, I feel like someone needs to say, that's not your joke to tell. 
And in the case of Sarah Silverman, what you wrote went beyond provocative. It was disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like, I think, like, is there no one to tell them it, at the moment, like, don't do this? Or even, like, in the last chapter, I talk about a lot of fashion. Like, there is a Gucci oh. turtleneck that rolled up that you put it over your mouth and had a blackface mouth on it. So, like, there's no one in the room to be like, uh, I'm sorry, this is probably going too far. But what we hear actually from the Fashion Institute of Technology example that I give where there's a student fashion show where the models are made to wear big fake lips and big fake ears, again, evoking these weird blackface imagery. There were, the, what the models were like, uh, I'm uncomfortable with this and actually I'm, I really don't want to wear this. And they were told, you will wear it. It doesn't matter if you're uncomfortable. It's only two minutes of your life and this is fashion. So that's what I think is disturbing. Even when we have these examples of people speaking up, it still happens. <laughs> you devote two chapters to the legacy of blackface. What's been the encompassing impact for everyone? Well, I mean, I think for white actors, there is, again, like I feel like whether consciously or unconsciously, it must be unconsciously, there is an assumption that black characters in performance are something that they are entitled to inhabit. Like that just happens over and over and over again. But for black actors, I think the legacy is, is probably more harmful because they're trapped in these performance modes where they're either kind of replicating a blackface portrayals of blackness, or they're in this other performance mode that again was established in the early modern period in Shakespeare's time about exhibiting their bodies and their trauma, or they're in these performance modes where they're constantly worried about if it's possible to perform black identity authentically. So like, I don't think white actors worry about whether or not they're performing whiteness authentically. But we see that over and over and over again in contemporary Black performances. That's a weird, horrible legacy to be trapped in. The final chapter of your book is tragic. I, I, it's titled, I Can't Breathe. Would you talk about the conclusion? Yeah, so... You know, I've been thinking about the kind of long history of blackface and the contemporary implications of blackface for a long time. But I knew that I wanted to write this book quite quickly, right? So like I've had, you know, 10 years to research this, but then I wanted to write it quite quickly. And in the middle of writing the book, George Floyd was murdered in the most, you know, horrific, inhumane way we can imagine where people were saying, you're killing him, get off his neck and just check his pulse. Mm. And Derek Chauvin refused to do either. So while I'm writing blackface, this happens. And I felt like there was a dirty, vile thread that went from these medieval and Renaissance performances of blackface through the 19th century, straight around George Floyd's neck and all of our necks in some ways. That this, this history, which we have a lot of 
cultural amnesia around continues to kill us and kills Black people individually, but I think in some ways kills us collectively. And that's, that's where I, I end up. And it's, it's a, it was hard. You wrote that this book is a defiant and material act of remembering our collective American history. Yeah, I mean, I think for a while now, blackface and the history of blackface minstrelsy has been treated as a black topic that like, we need to know it, we need to research it, we need to be in some ways responsible for this. And I wanted this book to be like, no, 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 no. This is our history. I don't need to know this more than you do. You need to know it as much as I do. Do you have any hope that the topic of blackface and the surrounding insult could be incorporated into education. We probably have to rethink the, our relationship with American history. I would love for us to have a reckoning about how we teach our past with regards to race and power and structural racism. But I actually don't think that's enough. I think we have to have new popular entertainments that include some of this history as well. So like thinking about the, the Tulsa massacre, I do think that there were a couple of, of good television shows recently that folded that in that sent young people onto their iPhones to do Google searches about what is this? Is this real? Is this fake? And I think that I would love for Hollywood, who has been really really complicit in the continuation of blackface. I would love Hollywood to say, okay, how do we encourage creations that teach this past in new creative ways? I, I think that would be probably as powerful as curricular reform. Professor Ayanna Thompson, more information about her book, Blackface, is available on our website wabe.org slash city lights. After a forced cancellation last year, the Amplified Decatur Music Festival is back and with an incredible lineup. The Grammy Award-winning duo, the Indigo Girls, are headlining the event. Blind Boys of Alabama, the Cactus Blossoms, and Michelle Malone joined them in the festival, along with several other performers. All proceeds from this weekend's outdoor concerts will go toward the Decatur Cooperative Ministry. Their mission is to help families dealing with homelessness by providing safe, stable housing and long-term support. All attendees must provide proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test within 48 hours of the event. The festival will take place over two days, Friday and Saturday. Friday's admission is free. More information about the weekend lineup and schedule is on their website, amplifydecader.org. 
You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m., the New York Times best-selling young adult authors Kimberly Jones and Geely Siegel share the story behind their new book, Why We Fly. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.